0: At the very beginning of this series on Revelation, uh, back in the fall, Pastor Stacy sent out a short survey. Do you remember it? Um, It asked us what our experience with Revelation had been. We had to choose one of five basic ways that we read the book of Revelation, the way that best represented how we had been taught or come to believe that Revelation is to be read. If I'm honest, I was scared of Revelation. I grew up in an ELCA Lutheran Church from birth through high school and I don't remember learning much about Revelation. As a college student and a young adult and an older adult, I don't remember learning much about Revelation. My basic thoughts were that I knew it wasn't a code to crack to figure out how the end times were going to happen. But I also had an idea that there was some crazy stuff in Revelation, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure it out because it's not a code to crack anyway. I'm not even sure what answer I put on this survey. Either that the text was poetic language used to express ultimate truths about God, evil, and history, or that the text was anchored in the past but meant to speak to every generation of readers. I felt like I had that little experience with Revelation. I don't even know that I could tell you what I was taught about it. And you may have noticed that this is the first time that I'm preaching on a Revelation text. I may or may not have been avoiding it. (laughs) I did volunteer to preach on New Year's Eve, after all, but that was a gospel text. (laughs) So, spending time in Revelation 10, however... I feel like I'm finally at a point where I'm feeling okay about the book of Revelation. There's some crazy stuff coming, don't get me wrong. But God, as always, has been faithful to meet me in his word. And I pray that the same is true for you this morning. So where do we start? Well, when I'm preparing for a sermon, my commentary research usually starts with a site called Working Preacher. It's a site with brief articles and research on Bible passages. I like it because it often includes the voices of women and people of color, and it can be hard to find commentaries written by these voices. I usually start there because it brings a new perspective to the text. So I started looking there for this passage from Revelation 10. And let me show you what I found. Now it's a little blurry if you're in the back, but I'm going to tell you what it says. So when you get to a working preacher, you click on Bible index, and then you click on New Testament, and then Revelation and then the drop-down menu for the chapter. And there are commentaries for chapter 7, and there are commentaries for chapter 13. (laughs) So, to be fair, these articles are written about passages in the lectionary, which is a three-year cycle of weekly Bible readings used by the vast majority of mainline Protestant churches in Canada and the United States, which also gives me another window into why I haven't had much experience with the book of Revelation, A lot of Lutheran churches are lectionary churches, and the text of Revelation is included in the lectionary, but it's pretty limited. Fortunately, Pastor Stacy has a stack of books and commentaries in his office about Revelation, so I did not have a shortage of resources. One of the first things that I read, and that we all heard in Pastor Stacy's sermon last week, is that this passage in Revelation 10 is an interlude. It gives us a cosmic perspective. It's a break between the action that was before and the action that will be after. It's a break specifically between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpet. There were interludes earlier between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal. So today, we're going to dive into this interlude in this series of seven. And as we spend time in this passage, I think we'll find a story with hope. Oftentimes, I'll have my sermons laid out with set points or ideas, but this passage didn't come together in that way for me. This passage does tell a story, so I want to engage it as a story and then show you where I find some different points of hope. As we tell the story of the angel that comes down from heaven and stands before John, I want to encourage our kids who are here and maybe even our adults to go ahead and draw what you hear. Because this is one part of Revelation that you could draw, and it's just another way to step into God's story. So in this passage, we have an angel coming down from heaven. Most commentators don't believe that this angel is Jesus or God, but the angel does come with heavenly authority. The rainbow above his head suggests the crown of a ruler, and it connects to the rainbow that encircles God's throne in Revelation 4.3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now the angel's face is like the sun, which reminds us of Jesus' face in Revelation 1.16. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. The angel comes in a cloud, and his feet are pillars of fire, which brings to mind God traveling with his people in Exodus, in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. These tie-ins to Exodus make sense, after all, because as the trumpets have been sounding in the time before this interlude, the plagues are being replayed, like in Exodus. So these images all bring the presence of God and Christ to our minds, but this is to show that the angel comes directly from God with a voice that speaks God's words. The angel is holding a little scroll that's open. In our first series of seven things, when we had the seven seals on the scroll, they were opened by the Lamb of God, by Jesus. This is the scroll that the angel now holds in his hand. The angel plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So if you're drawing, this is probably a pretty big angel, right? The angel stands this way to show authority over both the land and the sea. The authority comes from God, who rules over the land and the sea and the heavens and the earth. And then this angel shouts like a roaring lion, also bringing mind connections to Christ. We sang about them, didn't we? Who is called the Lion of Judah. As we look at and listen to this angel who's bringing a message to John, images of God and Jesus should come to mind because this angel comes directly from God's presence in the throne room of heaven. And then next, there's an exchange of voices. When this angel speaks, there are voices from heaven that answer. These are the voices of the seven thunders. These voices could be heard as talking back and forth to each other. And John's ready to write down what they're saying, but then he hears another voice, a voice from heaven, and this really could be the voice of God here. There are two commands that come from the voice of heaven, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down, and then the command to go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So this voice that speaks these two things, he tells John not to write down what he's hearing from the seven thunders. The voice also later in our passage tells John to take the scroll from the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. And this brings us to the first point of hope that I want to highlight this morning. It's the power of the voice of God. God. This past week, I included Psalm 29 in the daily scripture readings, and if you're not signed up to get those by email, you can sign up through the Bible app or on the communication card, and in a great holy echo, Psalm 29 was also read in the daily audio Bible this week. Psalm 29 mentions the voice of the Lord seven times, and I'm going to read you this part of Psalm 29, verses three through nine. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. This voice of the Lord is mighty. This is the voice that spoke at creation, and light, and dark, and land, and water, and plants, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and the birds, and the animals, and the people. Those were all brought into existence. God's voice isn't just something that we hear. God's voice has a power to speak an entire universe into existence. And in Psalm 29, the Lord pretty—the Lord's voice does some pretty terrifying things, doesn't it? The Lord's voice is compared to thunder. It breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It strikes with flashes of lightning. It shakes the desert of Kadesh. It twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. There is power in the Lord's voice. Yet at the same time, in Psalm 29, 11, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. When we are part of the family of God, we recognize the power in the Lord's voice. But we also experience peace in this power. Creation shakes and trembles in Psalm 29, but God's people are blessed with peace. I think of the story of Jesus calming the storm in Mark 4. Jesus and his disciples are crossing the lake, and Jesus is asleep on the boat. A furious storm comes up, and the disciples, in a panic, they wake Jesus up. And Mark 4 says, he, Jesus, got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. (coughs) He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus' voice, God's voice, has the power to speak to a storm And make the water completely still. And I think that in that type of power, we can find peace. I imagine that as John heard God's voice speaking all these words of revelation, John heard the power in God's voice. As John heard God speak from heaven in this passage, and as he looked at an angel sent from God, standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, I imagine that John may have also felt peace knowing that the same God has power over all that has come and all that is yet to come so why does a voice from heaven tell John to seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down well the message that John is to speak as a prophet comes from the scroll that's already been unsealed by the Lamb of God God isn't asking John to carry the message from the voice of the seven thunders. We can guess that that would be a different message than the message that is in the scroll. So as we go back to our story of this angel who is standing before John, the next thing our angel does is to raise his right hand to heaven. The angel is taking an oath. The angel is essentially saying that the message he is about to speak, if it's not true, Then may the God of heaven to whom I'm raising my hand, may God punish me. The angel swears by the God of heaven and earth and sea who lives forever and ever. And the angel announces that the mystery of God will be accomplished when the seventh angel sounds the trumpet and there will be no more delay. In Revelation 6.11, We read, then each of them, this is talking about the martyrs, the people who died for their faith. then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Pastor Stacy talked about this writing last week. In Revelation 10, the angel is saying that with the seventh trumpet, this time of waiting will end. With the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished as well. God's kingdom will be fully established, and God's kingdom will defeat all the powers of darkness and evil. This interlude in chapter 10 pauses the time between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, but we're reminded that all creation is moving toward this time when God will make all things right and new again, and that time will come. The voice from heaven tells John to take the scroll out of the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land, and the angel has a message for John. So let's look at the last part of our passage in verses 9 and 10. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. What's happening here? We've heard something like this before in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Ezekiel was a prophet sent by God to the people of Israel. The scroll he has given has God's message for the people of Israel. Ezekiel consumes this scroll. He eats it. So that God's word then fills every part of his being. It's God's word, so it's sweet tasting. Ezekiel fully takes in the word of God, which then prepares him to fully share this word of God with God's people. John is also asked to eat the little scroll that the angel hands to him. It contains God's message, so it's also sweet to the taste. And there are different ideas of what's actually written in that scroll that's handed to John. In verse 11, John is told, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So the words on the scroll are from God, given to John to speak to the people. John is another in the line of prophets to God's people. While there are many ideas, one of the most likely is that what's written on the scroll are the contents of Revelation 11, which Pastor Stacy is going to preach about next week. The scroll tells what will happen as God's kingdom finally does come, and as God does bring his creation to complete fulfillment. So we get a summary of the scroll's message in chapter 11, and then the rest of Revelation fills in all the details and flushes it all out as to what will happen before the final coming of God's kingdom. But this scroll that starts as sweet as honey turns sour in John's stomach. Why is this? And as with many parts of Revelation, there can be a few different meanings. So it could be that the scroll is sweet and then sour because it contains the good news that Jesus has conquered death and sin and invites us into a full life with him. That's sweet. But (coughs) the sour is that some will hear and not believe and turn away from God. It could be that the call from God to share his message is sweet, but the people will reject God's messenger and God's message, making the scroll and the job of the prophet taste sour. It would seem that the most likely reason that the scroll is first sweet and then sour is because the scroll contains the good news that Jesus has conquered death and sin, and he's invited us into a full life with him. That's the sweet. But we'll see in upcoming chapters that God's people will suffer as they wait for God's final fulfillment of all creation. God's final judgment will come. God will defeat Satan, and this judgment is going to be good news for the oppressed and the persecuted, because the ones who are doing the oppressing and the persecuting will be no more. God's kingdom will fully come to earth and will be living in the new heavens and the new earth. God will dwell among the people and be with us in the midst of us. But before that day comes, God's people will suffer. Does this ring true in our lives today? Have you experienced suffering in one way or another? Now, you may not know suffering like the martyrs in Revelation, and you may not be persecuted for following Jesus, but I would guess that everyone in this room knows suffering. As we enter the season of Lent this coming Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, we're going to have time set aside in our worship service to reflect on suffering in our world. We suffer personally, and our community suffers, our whole world suffers. We are never told that it's going to be an easy life when we follow Jesus. Jesus does say in John sixteen thirty three, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This, I think, is another point of hope. God will overcome the world. God will overcome the world. There will be suffering, but the seventh trumpet will sound, and God will rule over all creation, and the suffering will not have the final say. The end is not the suffering. The end is the day when Jesus returns, and God establishes his kingdom over all the earth, and there are no more tears. No more pain, no more sickness, no more death, and no more suffering. What about this idea of the scroll being sweet and sour? Could we draw other conclusions from it as well? Is there maybe another way we could see ourselves in this passage today? Yes, the sweet and the sour brings us a message that there will be suffering, and the suffering will end. We hear this in many places throughout Revelation. It's a common theme. But I want to invite you to take a look at this text and see what else it might be saying to us today. So this idea comes from Eugene Peterson's book, Eat This Book. There are a few sections where he references this text from Revelation and the text from Ezekiel, where the prophet is told to eat the scroll of God's word. When we encounter God's word for the first time, It's so very sweet to us. It tells of new life, of redemption, of a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. It's beautiful, and it fills this place deep in our soul where we've been longing for a relationship with God. But do you ever encounter something in the Bible where it feels a little bit painful? You read a passage, and you feel some conviction. You realize the way that you're living your life doesn't match up with what God is showing you in his word. This could be where the sour comes in. We sometimes try to reshape and refine what we read so that it matches what we think and believe, but Eugene Peterson cautions against this. The invitation isn't for us to reshape God's word, but rather to let God's word reshape us. And that can leave a sour taste in our mouth. Eugene Peterson says, This book makes us participants in the world of God's being in action. But we don't participate on our own terms. We don't get to make up the plot or decide what the character will be. This book has generative power. Things happen to us as we let the text call forth, stimulate, rebuke, prune us. We don't end up the same. Eat this book. But also have a well-stocked cupboard of Alka-Seltzer and Pepto-Bismol at hand. (laughs) While it can be painful and sour and bitter and unpleasant, I also think these are words of hope. God doesn't leave us as we are, but He meets us in His Word and He invites us into a deeper life with Him. Along the way of this life, there is sweet, and there is bitter, and there is suffering. And there is hope, and there is power, and there is peace, and there is God. There are still challenges ahead of John. He will now take the scroll and share the prophecy with the people, and the scroll's message has a lot. There are still challenges ahead for us. Listen for God's voice. He's speaking with power, but he's also speaking peace into our midst. Remember that the suffering is not the end. And don't be afraid to let God's word be a little bitter or sour at first, as God might be using that to shape you into more and more of God's likeness. And that shaping can even come through the books that we're most uncertain of, like this book of Revelation. Amen? Will you pray with me this morning to close our time together? Gracious God, we thank you that you always meet us in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that you are meeting us in Revelation. Lord, we thank you for this interlude, this pause, this moment where we get a cosmic perspective and where we can find hope. God, we know that you speak with power. We know that your voice commands the universe into existence. But God, we thank you that in that power we can also find peace with you. Lord, we know that we will experience suffering, but we know that the suffering is not the end and we look forward to that day when you make all things new. Lord, as we spend time in your word, as we draw closer to you, we know that we'll encounter things that will taste bitter or sour in our mouth. But Lord, when we get to those moments, make us humble, give us ears and eyes that watch for you, that listen for you, that invite you, to change and shape our lives. Lord, thank you that you bring us hope. We bring, pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.